hello everybody. I think we're in live. Yes, we are. Welcome to the weekly live stream where we are challenging uh, you, or I'm challenging you, where hopefully we are thinking deeply about Christianity, understanding more about what Christianity believes, why it believes it, uh, so that we can have an understanding of how we should live in this world. So we're addressing issues related to Christianity, issues related to the Christian worldview. And then often I also try to bring on experts and guests who can go deeper into some of the big issues and giving you a chance to interact with them. So today's interview, as you saw it, we're going to be discussing the evidence for God's existence, but even taking a step back to discuss what is evidence? How do we use evidence to try to prove something and even prove the existence of God? And then what does it actually matter if we believe that God exists or not? So to do that, my guest today is Jay Warner Wallace. He is the author of three phenomenal books that many have read, Cold Case Christianity, looking at the reliability of the Gospels. Uh, he then came out with God's Crime Scene, looking at, at the evidence of a divinely created universe, and then ultimately, finally, Forensic Faith, the looking at beliefs on Christian history. Now, Jim has written other books as well that I've discussed on the show, but here's kind of the three first books that he wrote, and so we're going to be talking about these evidence, how we use it, how we gain get into these conversations. So, Jim, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, glad to be here. That that's that's kind of my trilogy, at least a first getting ready to add to that trilogy yeah. uh, next year with another book. But um, yeah, I'm so glad people are reading those. I appreciate you talking about them. Yeah, and absolutely. And you wrote, you know, so the next generation will know with Sean. I yeah. think you came on and discussed yeah. that with me. But yep. just so you know, for the the YouTube crowd who is new watching this. Jim yeah. is the reason I started my blog and website, CoffeeHouseQuestions.com, back in 2015. And then I took a class with Jim on actually on God's crime scene, the evidence for divinely created universe. And it was in that class that Jim told me like, hey, you need to start a podcast. And I was like, Jim, I don't know how to do that. What are you talking about? And he's like, it's and easy. You'll you figure now. it out. Yeah, this, this <laughs> so awesome. that started the podcast in 2016, I believe. And then obviously YouTube is, is uh, started more recently than that. But uh, I owe a lot of what I do here to you. And you're just saying, get out and do it. Well, I'm, all I did was basically try to kick all you guys in the rear a little bit because uh, and gals because we have a class at Biola, which you know, and all the classes I teach there. I try to say at some point, okay, are you done being content consumers? Are you ready to be a content creator? Because that shift is is the same shift that I think we can say as Christians. Well, I, at some point, are you going to share the gospel that was shared with you? I know it's kind of the same approach, right? So, so it's good for us, I think, eventually to get out into a digital world and start making content. Absolutely. So that is the encouragement is, is we need more people getting out there and doing this, yeah. making content and, and making good content that people want to watch and that people want to, uh, to, yeah, to see and they, they can learn from. And that's my goal is to really make content that helps you gain a better, deeper understanding of the Christian worldview of, um, of what we as Christians believe and why we believe those things. And so, um, mm -hmm. one thing I, I I kind of point out here or to start with is we're talking about the evidence for God yeah. and for God's existence. Uh, why is it? I mean, I, I, I'm having you on to discuss evidence because I would say you're an expert in evidence. Is that a fair, uh, fair statement to say you're an expert in evidence? Well, as a... I mean, so so I, you look at the around the world of apologetics and there's lots of folks who have different lanes in or they have, maybe they have a, a Ph.D. in textual criticism or in some kind of t manuscript evidence or yeah. in uh, biblical uh, textual um, you know, evidence or they have a Ph.D. in biology and they have a, a lane in through the sciences or they're doing work in the sciences so they can talk about those aspects of, of the case for God's existence. So for me, I'm a case maker. What I do is I take all that stuff yep. as evidence and I present it to a jury to see if I can 
uh, actually, I, I think I've made a reasonable inference from the evidence. I want to help the jury make a reasonable inference from evidence. And so, yeah, I guess really that's, I've always said the only value I probably have to this Christian apologetics community is that I, I think I understand the nature of, and I'll see this all the time. I'll see apologists who will make claims that I think, ah, that's not really a great evidential. I would never make that claim in front of a jury the way they just made it. And that's, for example, one of the reasons why you very seldom will ever see me talk about the philosophical arguments for God's existence. So, so I wouldn't say I'm going to make an argument from the beginning of the universe, like the cosmological argument, because um, that's not quite the way we would do it in front of a jury. We would say there's a piece of data at the beginning of a universe uh, from nothing that is part of an overall case as a piece of evidence. Yeah. But I wouldn't probably pose it like a uh, philosophical argument. Because that's not the way we would do it in front of a jury. Yeah. So I, I've limited myself to what, how, how do we throw the ball so that jurors can catch it? Yeah. And, and that's kind of what we're trying to do here. Well, that's so good because, again, like uh, for those who are maybe not aware of who you are as a cold case homicide detective, being on Dateline, I think, right, more than any other detective in the country, you know how to take a bunch of evidence, know what counts as evidence, what doesn't, and then compile that and make a persuasive case for right. someone being guilty or whatever it may be. And so I think a lot of that does apply to God as well. And that's what you're able uh, to do with well, evidence. Well, and what's interesting about that too, Ryan, is that if you think about we have a, a, play, a way to test this. So, so I think if you're doing a lot of debates and you do tons of debates, well, then you get a chance to kind of test your, your approach, test yeah. the, the model of your arguments, because you get to do it all the time. Yeah. And that was what I experienced in these criminal trials, because we would always interview the witnesses afterwards to see what we did well and what we didn't do well. So it became like this laboratory uh, for epistemology. How do we know what we know and how do we argue that to others to help them know what we know? And and that's kind of what we do in jury trials all, all the time. So. Yeah. No, wonderful. And so that's that's kind of going to be the topic. So if, you, if you're watching uh, and you're, you're here live uh, to be sending in questions, we're going to be you know discussing some of the evidence for God's existence. Obviously, we're going to be talking about what actually counts as evidence uh, with some uh, objections, actually, that I received from an atheist. And then also then how does this apply to whether I believe in God, believe that God exists and how right. we get into conversations. Right. As Jim has mentioned here, how do you pers be persuasive in your presentation of evidence to a jury? Same thing I think Christians are trying to figure out is how do we how can we be persuasive in presenting this evidence as we are in evangelism? So those are kind of the, the topics that we're going to cover. So if you have questions and related to those, uh, send those in. We'd love to discuss your questions as well. So Jim, let's just kind of start it off here uh, with some objections or with some questions about the nature sure. of evidence. So I was in a conversation with an atheist. He has also uh, sent me some resources that I've gone through and asked him questions to kind of get his view. Uh, but he says, look, if we're trying to figure out what the best explanation for something is, Right. So, if, you know, you have a murder trial, you know, what's the best explanation? Right. You know, you you talk about did they die by natural causes where did they kill themselves, commit suicide or were they actually murdered? Right. What are the what's the best explanation? Uh, he says if we use, uh, especially in science, if we use kind of post hoc or ad hoc reasoning, all explanations can explain something about the past. So his thing is, how did the cup fall over? Well, maybe the cat knocked it over. That explains it. Uh, maybe a ghost blew it over. Maybe God tipped it over. Maybe you bumped it. There's lots of ways in which we, explanations that do sure. fit the evidence. Uh, and so he says, because we can find really a wide range of stuff 
to explain something. Uh, therefore, we have to look at explanations that can actually make future predictions. If your explanation doesn't make a future prediction, then it is inferior. So I'd like to come maybe stop here if you have some thoughts okay. on this. Of If you can't predict something in the future, then your explanation just is ad hoc. It's post hoc. Uh, therefore, you can't say God did something if you can't also make future predictions about God. Okay, so, so if I had a criminal trial, is a, sus, is a suspect or defendant in the case now eliminated because I cannot make future predictions about that suspect? Do you, do you see how this doesn't work when it yeah. comes to beings as causal agents? So it's one thing to say, we could, if, if everything is as the naturalist presumes, and only events, the only causation you have is event causation, well, then that might be valid. But we also know we live in a world in which there are, is agent causation. And when we're trying to figure out whether it's an event causation explains it best or, or agent causation explains it best, are just the laws of physics alone uh, sufficient to explain it? Or is there a need for some intelligent being to step in and cause it? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, th then we cannot make future, we cannot take this approach that is only limited to event causation. Yeah. It's only limited to natural causes outside of free agency, the agency of a being. So for example, if I walk in and I see that there's blood spatter on the wall, I did a whole, uh, I did a bunch of classes on this when I was working early on in my homicide career, uh, blood spatter classes. They're pretty sick, really. Think about it. <laughs> yeah, some people just have a hard time looking at blood in general. Now you yeah. have a whole class on how blood can exactly. spatter. Okay. Yeah, and we would be the ones spattering it. So we put this gear on, you know, <laughs> they'd bring in blood and they'd put it on things we could beat or stab or shoot and see how the blood spatters. And then we could start to make physical predictions uh, or just estimates about where somebody was standing when the impact occurred okay. that would cause the spatter, okay? Well, if you look at blood spatter on the wall, um, you, you, you know, you, you basically um, can use physics and chemistry, space, time, and matter. We'll explain that because blood has a certain chemistry. Uh, there are certain physical properties of spatter, directional properties, gravity is a part of it. So you'll see that you can explain all this blood spatter by simply, if you wanted to, uh, you know, physics and chemistry. So if somebody falls, for example, and hits their head and that's what causes the spatter, well, all of that can be explained by simply the physics of the fall, the chemistry of blood and how it affects the wall, all of that. But if I walk into the room and instead of seeing just blood spatter on the wall, I see he deserved it written in his blood. Well, am I allowed now to consider agency? Must I explain that with just physics and chemistry or isn't a bit now can I somehow that now I have to rely on what in the past I know is the most reasonable inference about information. I cannot conduct a test to try to repeat this. Yeah. That's not how we, we, we look at events in the past in which we're trying to consider if an agent is involved more so than just physics and chemistry. So I just don't know that that would apply. Yeah. So the kinds of things we do in criminal trials. Good. Um, so I presented this objection um, and he has a response to it, which I will share in a moment. But one thing I would love for you to talk about, and, and this came up even at a, a church Q&A I did a couple years ago down in San Diego, where uh, someone kind of compared science and the observational science of, look, observational science, uh, we can we can test it, we can uh, repeat it, we can continue yeah. to see it. If all of our science books got burned, we would be able to repeat it all versus the Bible. If you burn the Bible, you're not going to get that back again. Somehow show 
showing that the Bible is inferior. Uh, my response was kind of this idea that that would almost be like comparing observational science versus like a forensic science of discovering these one-time events. So I'd love for you to maybe to make the distinction yeah. of the difference between a forensic science and why maybe right. that's important when it comes to events like Christianity, the resurrection and God versus an observational science. Okay, so two things. Number one, um, don't be surprised. And I, I have to say this sometimes, sadly, that sometimes I think people are shocked or dismayed that, okay, so you offer this objection, and the first thing he says, you offer this response to his objection, and the first thing he does is offer you another objection or another response back. Like, if you think in the end that somehow you're going, the, the people who are really committed to their position, like defense attorneys, are never going to concede during the trial and stop arguing, stop stop providing an alternative explanation, stop um, trying to rebut whatever your claims are, that's just not, it's not like it's not going to roll over and give up. And so I don't know why sometimes we expect that maybe the person we're talking to, don't be surprised when there'll always be a response to no matter what you say. Yeah. This happens in criminal trials, even though we know we have the truth. And jurors will convict based on that. And later on, suspects will confess. But trust me, it didn't stop that defense attorney for six weeks uh, fighting tooth and nail, even though we now know, and he knows because his suspect confessed afterwards that he was wrong. Yeah. So first of all, don't be shaken by the fact that there will always be an alternative response from the person with whom you're talking. Yeah. Uh, now, number two, you're right. Because Christianity is um, an event that is dictated by an event, in the, it's a, a worldview that's dictated by an event that occurs in the past, we have to use the kinds of science that would be appropriate to analyzing events that occur. We use lots of science in, in criminal trials. We use lots of science in, in homicide investigations, but it's forensic science that applies to events in the past. It's not the kind of repeatable, observable. We're not going to be able to, 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 to kind of rewind all the characters and watch them commit the murder again. That's not going to happen. Instead, we're going to use science to help us determine something that has happened previously. And so when we're looking at um, explanations for like the beginning of the universe, well, now we are limited to, we, we, we can certainly um, uh, use some aspect of science that's observe, uh, observational science, but for the most part, we're taking a forensic approach to the beginning of the universe. We're taking a forensic approach to, to, um, to the origin of life. And even though we might be able to do some repeatable experiments, uh, like trying to recreate life in the lab, uh, that it really draws on certain assumptions that are going to be discovered forensically. So I think in the end, we have to understand that forensic science is at least as valuable in many ways, especially when we're talking about events that occurred in the past, as observational science. I cannot, for example, I might be able to look at, uh, you know, exhume some graves and uh, go back to where certain murders occurred, and I might be able to find a way to, um, uh, you know, to, 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 to do some DNA work on a murder that occurred, let's say, 30 years ago, okay? But I'm not going to be able... To, to reenact some uh, some experiment in order to 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 lock it down. Yeah. So to, to, to learn anything new. So that's the first thing. A forensic approach is absolutely appropriate when you're trying to explain an event in the past and you are trying to determine if it's entirely natural or if um, an agent was involved. Yeah. Especially you know if an agent's involved, you're not going to be able to use observable science. You're going to have to use a forensic approach. Yeah. And I think this is so important to point out is that we don't have this like 
non-scientific basis when it comes to scripture and the events of scripture and like the resurrection of Jesus, we would approach the, the death and resurrection of Jesus in a similar way you approach a, mur a cold case murder trial, right? You hear someone who died a long time ago, what's the best explanation for their death? And this isn't like pitting some, you know, Christianity versus science. This is just different types right. of science. Different kinds of science. That's Good. Right. Okay, so his response to me saying, well, hold on a second. Uh, what about the difference between forensic and observational science? How does forensic science make predictions? Uh, he says, no, this idea of making this prediction um, it applies to all science. But if the things have already made predictions, therefore have an empirical basis, then it has an implicit empirical basis. For, the exa for example, a person killed another person or I saw a dog. Because these things already have a lot of empirical evidence, you don't need to provide with more predictions. If it was for something that had no empirical basis, like magic killed the person, or I saw a unicorn, you first have to present testable predictions that are required that show that unicorns or magic is real and reasonable before you can use that as a um, as the best explanation. So right, so here we're saying God is the right. best explanation for this, and he's saying no, you first have to show testable, reasonable, predictive things to show God is actually real before he can be the best explanation. So there's no because. Right. Because Christians well, have not done that for God, you can never yeah. say God is, uh, here's evidence well, see, for God. Here's the, here's, the, here's the problem with it. The problem, of course, is you're saying, I'm going to limit any investigation of a supernatural being to natural sciences. Okay, but here's the problem. The thing you're looking for is not natural. If this, this being exists, how are you going to test this with natural sciences? At best, you might see his footprints you might see his fingerprints on something forensically. But to say we're gonna to have to develop, I have, I'm sorry, I cannot believe that there's a God that could do this unless I can develop some type of natural observable experiment that would, would somehow, you're, you're talking about a supernatural being that's outside of space, time, and matter. What set of, I mean, what we're saying is if he enters into space, time, and matter, we ought to be able to forensically look, but how? what kind of, I would have simply asked the question, okay, so tell me then, what would it take? What kind of experiment would be satisfactory? What, what would the nature of this experiment be? Yeah. What would the nature of the science be that you would use to, to test or to discover if there's something outside of science, outside of the natural realm? Because mm -hmm. I don't know that, that anyone's ever come up with a good, a good experiment for this. Yeah. And if they did, they would just discount it as, you know, they would, oh, you know, if I said, for example, I'm going to set this up in this room and if it knocks over, I'm going to know there's a God. Well, if it did knock over, they would find some other explanation for it. Right. Yeah. So well, I think in the end, I'm just not quite sure. To me, it's, it's, it's great. Let me set the parameters up in such a way that you theists could never even play the game. Yeah. And that's kind of what's happening here with this. Right. Yeah. It does seem that so, way. Yeah, so I think in the end, what we're actually asking is, I, I forget about this, this, this the kind of traditional way that we think about arguing for God. Let, let's just do it this way. We would say that there are some events in history, the history of the universe, that seem like they beg for an explanation. Uh, how did the universe begin? How did life originate? And then there are claims that are, are, are claims of Christianity that come along down down the road, like did Jesus live and did he really rise from the dead? Okay, fine. These are historical events. I don't think if you're going to argue, by the way, and there's a bias here, because really what it comes down to, like I said before, that test that he's willing to offer is only reasonable if the only kind of causation is event causation. You cannot do repeatable tests 
if there's a mind of a free agent and there's agent causation, because you can never going to accurately predict what a free agent does. That's why they're called free agents. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be hard to develop a test that would allow you to test uh, that. You're assuming up front that there is no agency involved in any of the history of the universe. It's all just event causation. Mm -hmm. But if that's true, then I'm not even sure why you would trust that you're actually thinking clearly about it today because your thoughts aren't free. Yeah. Your thoughts are also just part of the event causation. So this entire view that says there's no test that you could apply to this issue of God's existence assumes a worldview that would not allow you to even think freely that, that your, that your uh, inference is correct. So I think in the end, um, a lot of this is just about, okay, well, let's just talk about then. You tell me. Uh, what kind, rather than us say, well, you're sure you could divide, sure, I'm sure you, no, I'll tell you this. What do you think, You what would it take for you to release your presupposition? That's what this is all driven by. Yeah. Your presupposition is there's no unicorns, and you think we think there are. There's no flying spaghetti monster, and you think we think there is. So your presuppositions are against the existence of such things, fine. So tell me what it would take in terms of a test, a scientific test. Now, I suspect what's going to happen is they're not going to offer anything. They, they can't think of a test because they've already excluded the possibility before they even began. Yeah. And I think and he, he, he makes a statement like that. And I think that applies to what you just said. But I also have kind of a question for you about it and how it would yeah. work in a trial case. But he says anything asserted as a metaphysical explanation could also be explained by something better that we some natural explanation that we just don't know about yet. OK, so origin of origin of information in DNA. Yeah. Well, there could okay, be so some let's, let's, let's explanation for origin of information in DNA that we just haven't discovered yet, but that's better okay, than a metaphysical so, explanation because there's no evidence of a metaphysical okay, so, world or a supernatural okay, world. I, I hear that all the time. Yeah. Right? I hear it all the time. Hey, so uh, I, I can tell you, this is one of the things that, 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 that will keep a lot of folks from, from walking away entirely from their theistic views because you still got to explain the, the origin of information. Mm -hmm. And even if you could somehow explain the origin of the universe, and that has not, they're not any closer to explaining that either. By the way, when you see more then when you see 10 theories that are offered by the scientific community to explain one thing, that should be a little flag should go off. That means that nobody really knows. Because if they did, there wouldn't be 10 theories. There'd be one. And we'd all agree on it. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that these theories don't work. And the information is the biggest problem. Code. Code. If this is truly code, and it's instructing the formation of proteins from amino acids, it is responsible for every aspect of the building blocks of biology and the characteristics that even we now are starting to tie more and more to behaviors, if you really think that that code, that, that burden's on you. And I would just say that if all I needed was one piece of evidence, that would be the evidence for me. Tell me how, again, blood, physics and chemistry, space, time and matter will explain the blood spatter on the wall. But physics alone, you know, you wouldn't walk in there. And if it says in blood, he deserved it, you would start looking for a murderer. Yeah. You wouldn't just say, well, no, I don't understand how to explain this yet by just physics and chemistry, but someday the science will tell me how to explain that. That's just foolishness. You would instead <laughs> say, well, no, I, I, there's a shift in the case now. It's not just blood spatter. There's information on the wall. Yeah, but you know, someday science is going to explain that for us. How much? How, how is that any uh, less ridiculous than me saying, I don't know, but someday God will explain it to me? Yeah. I don't think anyone's going to allow me to do that. No. I don't think they should. Yep. I think in the end, the reason why I default to an agent for the code we call DNA is because that burden seems most re 
we would not like say, I can't look for a suspect until I make a case for why suspects would write he deserved it. No, you just know right away that when you see that he deserved it and you see it's a message, it's information, you know you're looking for an agent. Yeah. You know you're looking for a mind. Yeah. And I don't know why we have this problem over here where we say, hey, everything in our history, the history of science, the history of the universe, points to intelligent minds as the source of information. But now we see it here and suddenly we're like, ah, suspend that belief, suspend that, that inclination. Uh, I'm looking for physics and chemistry to explain this. Well, why? That's motivated by a bias. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and that's one thing I love about your uh, your book, God's Crime Scene, is, is the the illustration that you use about being inside and outside the room, that there are certain things that are inside the room that can't be explained by factors inside the room. And so when you have a murder scene with he deserved it written in the person's blood, there's no explanation inside that room. It points to someone or something outside the room, information, right. intelligence that put it there. Uh, and the same thing that we see inside and outside of our universe. Um, that is good. And so now I'm curious, kind of flipping this just a little bit, is yeah. when you're in a in a court, you're on trial, or you're in a trial, you're in a courtroom, you're trying to predict, uh, show a jury, this idea that, well, there could be something better that hasn't been explained yet that actually mm -hmm. better explains this. Um, how would this work in a court case where, hey, this person sure looks guilty, but maybe there's someone we haven't found yet that is actually the guilty one. And because there's this possibility that someone else who we haven't found yet could better fit the evidence, I'm going to say this person is innocent. Yeah. So we don't even allow that kind of, spe it's called speculating. Speculation in jury uh, deliberations is, is we tell, we have a, a kind of series of slides we will use with juries before we release them to, to where we try to help them understand the jury instructions here. And the jury instructions are, you cannot do a lot of what ifing. We'll even put up there. If you hear someone say, what if, like they're speculating about something for which there is no evidence yet, but they're thinking, but well, but maybe, no, look, if you don't feel like the evidence is strong enough to convict the defendant, I get it. That was our burden. And we needed to make that case better then. But if you think, oh yeah, no, the evidence makes, he looks guilty. But, you know, a lot of this, look at it this way. Um, we're talking about racism in our country so much right now. Well, what if we got a juror on the jury pool who's in our jury trial now? He's on the jury, and he's a racist. And he's white or he's black, and he thinks the other race can never do a kind of crime like this. And so if he's a white guy and he's thinking, hey, the suspect's white and white guys don't do this, or if he's black and he thinks the suspect's black and black guys would never do this, so he refuses to consider the evidence against him, and he's looking for another alternative because he has a presuppositional bias against the kind of causal agent that's sitting at the end of the table hmm. because he's got a racial bias against him. Well, we try to eliminate those people from our juries, right? Because that's just, well, what's happening here is there's people have a certain bias against the kind of causal agent that's sitting at the end of the table. That causal agent, for a lot of people, as long as it's physics and chemistry, I got no problem. But if it's a god who might have called me to live a certain way or might have expectations for my moral character, my moral life, I, I don't want that. No, no, that that I've already excluded that kind of suspect from my case. And a lot of what we're seeing here is a bias against the kind of causal agent that's sitting at the end of the table, not the strength or the lack of strength of the evidence. Yeah. And so what we say in jury trials for, for jury deliberations, we simply say, if you find someone on the jury who is saying something like, what if stop them? Uh, because they, they have if they haven't presented. So I'll give you an example of how this happened. I had a case where a guy uh, shot his wife. They were going through a nasty divorce. Um, it, it was actually on uh, on television on Dateline. It was called The Threat. 
Um, anyway, he, he shot his wife because uh, they, he didn't want to give her any money from the divorce, and she managed to find a way to get that money using her attorney. And when he discovered that she had got this money, he went over to their house where she was packing it up because they were divorcing, and he shot her in the head. Now, afterwards, there was an inclination, uh, kind of an insinuation, rather, that from the defense team that this could be something like a, a home burglary. Now, hold, and I, we had to stop the jury before they went to jury deliberation and say, hey, has this team given you any evidence to suggest that there was a forced entry in the house? Burglars usually forced entry. Mm -hmm. uh, no. Was there anything taken? Like burglars take things in burglaries. Uh, no. Was there any like series of burglaries that they can document in that part of town? Have they given you any evidential reason to believe it could be a burglar? No. Then that's speculating. You could say, well, what if it's a burglar? Does it look like the husband? Yes. But what if it's a burglar? No, you can't do that. They've given you no evidence to, to, to be able to build a case that it's a burglar. So, so you have to say, okay, if it's not ground, now what we're saying here is, I don't know how information can come from physics and chemistry, but I think it could. <laughs> You're saying there's a burglar without any evidence for the burglar. If the best evidence is that information always in your practical experience, in the history of science, in the history of the universe, always comes from mind, why would you? It's like someone telling you, for example, um, and you see atheists do this all the time, where they'll argue, like Sam Harris, who's a neuroscientist, he argues that we don't have free will, that we don't actually even have the kind of, stuff, the kind of free agency we think we have. Yeah. And he would argue that we don't have consciousness the way we think we have. It's just our brains are functioning a certain way. Well, I'll tell you what. If... Um, you want me to reject my every day, every moment experience of consciousness and free agency, then you better be able to show me something evidentially that demonstrates that. Because I, I have a firsthand experience that's evidence for me every day. Yeah. And so that firsthand experience is going to, by the way, that's a universal firsthand experience. It's not like some of us to say, well, I actually have an experience of God that I've seen all throughout my life. Some people will say, no, I don't have that. But none of us are going to say, I have no experience of self-consciousness and free agency. So same thing here. If you know that all information in your entire lifetime, you've only seen that as the product of causal agents that act freely, that are thinking, minds, why would you abandon that explanation now? Yeah. That's so good. Now, I kind of maybe you've, you've referenced this a few times, and I really want to kind of hone in just a moment, and maybe if you have any follow-up thoughts that you haven't mentioned yeah. already on this before yeah. we get to some uh, questions sure. that have been sent in for you. Uh, uh, but this is is that, um, so I just finished my, I'm in my second week of teaching, new school year, new students, and so I'm trying to make the case in my class uh, for the, you know, why Christianity is the best explanation sort of thing is that, yeah. uh, look, it's just like math. This is true. It's not just based on opinion. We're talking about truth here. Um, the problem is, is that when it comes to math, two plus two is four, everyone agrees. There's a lot of disagreement yeah. when it comes to religions and even in my ethics class that I'm teaching this year to my seniors, there's a dis disagreement on what is the ethical right way and wrong way to go about something. And so we often see disagreement as being everything is subjective, there is no truth, because if there's truth, we would agree. And I think that a, a criminal court case is very similar to that in the sense that you have truth. Either this guy murdered the person or he didn't, um, and you obviously presented the, the, the example of when you had caught him and he eventually... Uh, pled guilty. However, even with truth, even with evidence, not everyone is convinced and people have different opinions and someone may go away saying, man, I thought he was innocent. Um, so yeah, how sure. is it then that this kind of relates to when we have evidence, actually, it still is truth, 
there still is objective truth, even if maybe we can't convince everyone because you've talked about there's there's bias that's involved. Uh, yeah. how, what else have you seen in court cases? Yeah, so this is all the stuff we have to work carefully to try to uh, see if we can weed out in the voir dire process when we're selecting jurors. Because what we're trying to do there is figure out, hey, are you somebody who, and then look, this is an entirely human endeavor. So there's no doubt that it's gonna, we're gonna get people on that jury who are, are gonna struggle with their own presuppositional biases. It comes down, I wish it could just be, I always say this, I wish it was just a matter of teaching them the jury instructions and teaching them the laws of, of evidence, but it's not just, I mean, to be honest, what factors more is what is your personal history? Have you experienced something like this that you left you with a bad taste in your mouth? What are your personal biases? What are your likes and dislikes? What do you want from the world? What do you want from people? All of these things, how you're wired, how you're hardwired. Are you just somebody who's trusting, somebody who's distrusting? I mean, these are things that actually end up making a bigger impact on your decision than the evidence we present. Mm -hmm. So we know that we are dealing with humans. And that's why sometimes juries get, get hung up. You know, they get hung, you're 11 to one, um, because that one, now it seems clear to the other 11, they're frustrated that that one didn't come along. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, this is, again, it's not just the evidence. We're not computers that we just dump data in and we get it to kick out a tape. Uh, tape. is not a computer use a tape anymore. <laughs> that's how old I am. But my point is, uh, you know, it's not, that's not how it works. Yeah. So I'm always very, but again, the fact that one person might reject a claim, does that mean now that the claim never, that the event never occurred? Does that mean, I can tell you that, um, one of the cases we had, it's also on Dateline, um, we, we had a guy who would not confess to it. And if he'd have confessed early on, we probably would have offered him a really good deal because it was 35 years after the fact. But he 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 would not uh, confess to it. So we convicted him. And he's getting released, actually, this year. I think he only served six years. So, I mean, he's here maybe seven years. So, but, so he's actually coming out of custody. But I will tell you that um, nobody believed that he was the killer, including, of course, his defense team. Now, like a lot of defense attorneys, they are true believers, but not necessarily in their client. Hmm. Sometimes they're true believers in the system, and even though they know their client is guilty, they know that they have to do the best they can to represent their client. Sometimes they're true believers in the money, and they're being paid well. And sometimes they're true believers in their client. This guy was a true believer in his client. And the victim's family refused to believe that this guy was the killer because they loved this guy as much as their own daughter who was killed. So nobody believed it. And even after we convicted him, nobody believed it. Keith Morrison on Dateline did not believe it. We filmed hmm. it before he ultimately confessed to it. Hmm. So we know now that he did it. So my, my point is, the fact that there may be some people that don't believe a thing occurred does not then negate the fact that it did occur a certain way. Absolutely. And that's the difference between a subjective, the subject gets to decide what they believe is true, and an objective claim where the facts themselves are an, are, are an evidence or an event occurs or that these are glasses, you know, that they're not a, a Diet Coke. Uh, I, you know, that the object is what decides the claim, not the subject. And, and so this is what we're talking about. We're talking about objective truths related to any worldview, by the way. All worldviews are similar in this sense. They, they make three claims. You know, how did it, how do we get here? Why is it so messed up? How do we fix it? Yep. These are things that worldviews try to try to explain. Yep. And this is true if you're an atheist too. So the fact that, for example, they would I think be quick to say that the fact that you personally do not believe 
that the universe could come into existence from nothing, or that information could be caused by nothing more than physics, chemistry, and the environmental forces of space, time, and matter. The fact that you believe that, Jim Wallace, does not mean that what you believe is true. Something really did objectively happen in the past, and even the fact that, the fact that some humans don't believe it, or that some subjects don't believe it, would not necessarily would would not uh, affect what, how it happened. Yeah. So that's true of both sides. Yeah. So good. Um, all right. So <clears throat> a couple questions that came in on Facebook. Uh, the first one here uh, I have is for from Stuart. Uh, I think you know him. But anyway, Stuart says, um, what do you think uh, or recommend as the starting point for discussing the evidence for God talking with atheists? Should we start with a clear understanding of what forms evidence uh, take before we discuss the evidence, what the evidence actually is? Yeah, I think we should. Uh, I'll tell you what we do in juries. You know, we do, we do two things before we send them off their way to make a decision. We, we pick them, so we vet through a process, hoping to make sure we get people who, for the as best we can tell, are not going to be driven by those things we talked about, desires, past histories, biases, uh, you know, their wants, their likes and dislikes, all of those things we try to work through, uh, how they're wired. Um, and then the second thing we do is we give them a set of jury instructions. And we, will, we, we know in certain cases there are – so, for example – do I have it here? Uh, I think it's in my in my other closet. There's a huge blue volume of California jury instructions, and those California jury instructions are divided up into what kinds of crimes. So, for example, there's a specific set of instructions for thefts. There's a specific set of instructions for murders, and they are specific to the kind of crime. And if is there multiple suspects? Do we have certain kinds of witnesses? All of these have special instructions. And so we provide, and, and both the defense team and the prosecution team work with the judge to decide which set of instructions we are going to give to the jury. Because now, this often does happen, though, after we've already, uh, either along the way or at the end of showing the evidence. So it's up to you. But I do think that if, if, if we understand, for example, you asked earlier, like what, what qualifies as evidence? If we think that certain things would not be important evidentially, well, then if I present those things to you, you're going to say, well, that's not evidence because you have your limited understanding of what you think evidence is. Yeah. Right. So I, I always say it this way. Everything has the potential to be used evidentially. Everything. And it's always two sides of the coin, flip sides of the coin. So, for example, um, where this occurred, you know, it's not random. That's important. Where crimes occur actually sometimes tell you who did it hmm. or does it start pointing you in that direction. If someone's killed in their business. Uh, behind the counter and there's money missing, that's very different than if they're murdered in their bedroom, right? That where it occurs matters. But oftentimes where it could have occurred but didn't occur is equally important. And that's a negative though, right? I mean, you're telling me that where it could, yeah, I mean, if, 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 if she had her day where she was in 15 different places, but it occurs in this one over here, that's evidential. That tells us something. What did she say? What didn't she say? Hmm. What did she do? What didn't she do? It's, it's everything. Everything has the potential to be brought. And I have, we have seen so many weird things that you might think, why would that matter, right? Like, why, how does that get, how does, and we will talk about it with the judge. Defense teams will sometimes try to, to eliminate or try to stop us from using something that seems kind of abstract. And we've got to make a case without the jury present uh, in front of a judge as to how this thing that seems like a bunch of, like, so like nothing, right? But we try to show how it's connected to other pieces of the puzzle and why it will be important for a jury. And then the judge decides if, it, if, it's, if it's prejudicial, if it's probative, they'll decide if it should be allowed in the trial. So I would say to anybody who's looking at the existence of God, 
that yeah, what a good jury instruction is is that everything has the potential. So if you say, well, no, I'm only going to limit to what types of empirical, observable, scientific experiments I can conduct. That's the only way evidence can come in. That's the only form of evidence I would ever accept. You're missing it. And you would never be able to determine any other prior events causation. And that's really what we're talking about here. Yeah. Is I'm not trying to make the existence for this abstract thing called God. I'm trying to explain, how did we get here? How did life originate? Did this thing happen with Jesus of Nazareth? These are, these are causes. We're looking for the causes of these things. So in the end, I think that if you know, that's why you have to be careful not to, if you only think certain forms of evidence. So I would say, yeah, I, I would probably spend some time talking about evidence and the nature of evidence before I just start, you, you know, um, yeah. demonstrating, showing the evidence. Yeah, because you can often, often what happens is you present the cosmological argument. It's like, well, I don't accept that. Or, you know, it's like, it's easy to just go, I don't yeah, accept that. I don't accept. It's like, right. wait, then hold on a second. Let's, let's take a step back and figure out what you'll even right. accept before I spend a bunch of time showing you all this stuff that you just kind of throw out. Now, the- well, listen, I think what you just said, Ryan, is really important because, you know, Frank Turk and I always talk about that too. I mean, sometimes that first question will solve you a lot of heartache, right? <laughs> yeah. We're trying to figure out where on that jury spectrum people are. Are they yeah really interested and they're kind of teetering on one side or the other or are they so committed to their position that they're really just here to mess with you okay that's really all this is and by the way if we're in a social media world right now in which there is such polarization it's not a uh, a, a world in which we have civil discourse much anymore and it's really easy i think for example if it was me and i was the god of social media here's what i would say Nobody gets on that platform unless your full name, first, middle, last name, and a picture of you and your family and the city in which you live is posted on your social media platform. <laughs> I guarantee you the discourse would be a lot more civil, yeah. right? Because what's happening now is I have anonymity. Yep. And then if I still didn't cut cool down, and it probably still had to be some jerks online, right? I would Then I would say, well, you're only allowed to interact with people you live five miles from, <laughs> right? Because if I know I'm going to bump into you at the market this week, I'm going to be a lot more civil to you than if I think I have, even if you know where I live, but I'm across the country, right? Yeah. I mean, there are, this is what has happened. In, in, uh, 100 years ago, the only people you had a conversation with were the people who were in your local community. And civility reigns because when you have to see people consistently, you're, you're going to be a little bit different than you are if you know you can make that statement and just log off. Yeah. Right? So what we have to, I think, find a mechanism by which to bring that kind of local familiarity and identity back to global social media. Yeah. And until that happens, it's, we're going to become more and more polarized, more and more angry with each other. We're going to say things. And by the way, we also every year are less reined in by a Christian worldview that seems to mitigate such behaviors, right? Hey, and by the way, I see as many Christians saying mean-spirited things to each other as yeah. I see non-Christians. Yep. So it's just, it's the nature of this social media. I think it's poisoning us. Absolutely. Yeah. My wife says that all the time is like, when I get comments online or whatever happens, it's like, say that to their face. Come, come say that to his face and see if you, no one would say that to, right in someone's face right. if you're having a conversation. Um, awesome. Well, we are getting close to being out of time. We got about 15 minutes left and there's two okay. kind of big questions that have come in. All right. um, so the, the second reason why I contacted you, uh, the first one obviously is to discuss the nature of evidence is that it kind of came up with these objections with the atheists. The second one is that I got a, a question from Marissa and she's also joined us here 
here live, uh, yeah. asking about the difference between kind of belief in and belief that. I know you've uh, discussed this in your work and I love the examples that you've given, but here she sent in the question and said, I'd love to hear you talk on why just simply believing that God exists or believing in God is not enough to be saved. I guess the context of my question is thinking that about students who don't need to be convinced that God exists, but don't see why they have to surrender their trust and uh, and their lives to God. The first thing that comes to mind is that even the demons believe that God yes. exists. So I want to stop there before yeah. we get to the second part. And yeah, I know you've shared the story kind of, a, you know, the bulletproof vest of believing that something yeah. versus believing yeah. in. I'd love for you to share why the belief in God is important rather than just believing that God exists. Well, and this is exactly, I mean, for, for no other reason, scripture tells us this, right? This is a system in which we're going to make a decision about this issue about belief based on the special revelation of the New Testament, right? Or the Old Testament. So we're going to have so it's not one of these things we're going to be talking about philosophically, because we're talking about a, specific, a uniquely Christian um, um, approach to salvation. And in order to get the uniquely Christian definition, we're going to have to go to the uniquely Christian scripture. So I think that verse in which it talks about how even the demons believe, yet they're not saved. So believe that doesn't get you saved. I can believe that um, Jesus lived, for example. And I might even believe that um, he is, for, so for example, we say that Baha'i, Baha'i believe that Jesus is a manifestation of God in the same uh, level as, say, Buddha or Muhammad or Baha'u'llah. Um, but Muslims believe that Jesus is in many ways pretty similar to his stature in Christian scripture, but with major differences, right? Not God incarnate. Uh, did not really die and rise from the grave, but they believe something special. They actually hold him in a, in a position higher than Muhammad. So, so is this is this enough? I believe something about Jesus that Jesus was X, Y, or Z. But to trust him, look, here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get in front of a holy God, in front of a holy God who's different than us, by just by virtue of his righteousness, like oil and water. You cannot stand in front of this holy God. You're not, you're not that, you're in a completely different category. So how do you get, you, how do you have my sin nature in front of a holy, sinless God? How can I ever stand? Well, now I've got to trust in something. It's not just believing that Jesus X, Y, or Z. I've actually got to trust in Jesus to save me and do for me what I cannot do for myself. And so that when God looks at me, he sees the sinless Jesus, not the sinful Jim. And so this is this is why I've got to trust in that, right? Not not just trust that Jesus rose from the grave. Look, the offer here is that if you will trust the work that Jesus did on the cross for you, that you can now stand in front of a sinless God in spite of your sins because they have been obliterated, they have been paid for by the work of the one sinless man, Jesus. Now that's the kind of belief in. And it's trusting in that work is very different than believing data points from the Gospels or believing data points if I had a list of characteristics of Jesus. Yeah. It's that every day I recognize not just that something happened in the past, but man, without the work that Jesus did on the cross, I am doomed. Hmm. There, there, there's a wrath of God. Oh, it has to be, not because he's like, I'm just angry and I want to be angry. No, because his righteousness yep. has no room for sin. And that wrath of God is against all unrighteousness. Well, folks, that's you and me. I, I wish it wasn't true. I wish there was some other way to, to characterize it. I, I, but you know, if you know yourself at all, you know there's a bunch of stuff you're not proud of. Yeah. 
there's a bunch of stuff you do in private, say in private, think in private, you hope stays in private. Yeah. And there is no private if there is a God. And there's the problem, is that I know I have a need for what it is Jesus offers, not just I know what the facts are related to Jesus. Yeah. That is so wonderful. Um, so then the question comes in, and she kind of even added to this a little bit here in the live chat, um, where you know you say they're like, hey, so how do you talk or persuade about God uh, with people who believe that God, um, but they just have He's been shaped into their own ideas? So she up, up above at the top again, she kind of goes on this and says, um, but I've noticed a lot of kids they will believe that God exists, but they want to shape Him into the God that they want to exist with their moral guidelines, God's who you know is okay with homosexuality and sex outside of marriage and doing what they want ultimately. So how would you persuade someone that the God that exists is not the God of their own making, but the God of Scripture? Well, in, in, you'd be a fool to get married to somebody who you think is the person that, of your own making. In the end, you have to recognize even who you marry is somebody who has their own, they are who they are. And you could think, oh, they're not that. But that's not going to make for a good marriage. As a matter of fact, at some point, they're not, they, I guess you'll be surprised when they leave you because you've thought them to be one kind of person when in fact they were a different person. It turns out that, that we, anytime you try to shape another being into your image, bad things typically happen. And so there's a truth about God. And, and again, is it grounded in my opinion? Is the truth about God entirely subjective? So I get to make him who I want him to be? If there is a God, it seems to me that he as the object, he as the, the source, he, he is who he is. And, and he's, I, I, might be, I might be right about my views about God, or I might be wrong. But my views about God do not shape the character of God any more than your views about somebody you never met. Uh, you have, say, for example, there's a, a you, you're a big fan of um, I don't know um, what's the what's a, a great singer right now that's out there. Um, you know, let's say if Taylor Swift released her folklore album what, a couple of months ago. All right, a month ago. You're more of a fan and, of Taylor Swift than I am, I think. Well, I, you know, I didn't my, know daughter, that. my daughter, was, <laughs> and my daughter's like in her 20s, but she she was you know a fan of her since she was a kid. Yeah. So she's so you might have a view, for example, about that artist. Does your view then make that artist so? Does your, does your, or, or, is, or, or, you, or is it possible you might meet that artist and discover that actually, you know, I was wrong. My opinions about this, I didn't know enough about her to really know who she really was. Well, the same thing is true for God. There's a God out there and you can have opinions, but it turns out actually, he's told us something about who he is in the revelation, the book of, Reve of special revelation, the scripture. So it turns out if you wanted to know, now what you have to do, if, if you find yourself in the, having to twist and turn to, create, to, 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 to take out verses in their isolation and try to create a God of your own liking. But I think what most of the time happens is there are people who aren't even reading the scripture. There are people who are saying, you know, like kind of affiliating with something about Christianity. Maybe they were raised that way, but they've never really read scripture in its entirety, read an entire book. You know, they, they actually read through Romans 1 and 2. I mean, you're going to have certain moral views based on what Paul says in Romans 1 and 2. You're going to have certain views about marriage based on what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. You're going to have certain views about about the nature of, of uh, what's offensive to God if you read the Old Testament. So the question then becomes, are you really reading it at all to know? Or have you just said, I'm not going to pay attention to what God has revealed to us, and instead I'm just going to imagine the character that I can live with? Yeah. And that's where I think it's going to be more and more important that churches going forward are really doing expository teaching, right? And finding a way, I mean, I get it. I was I got saved in a church that doesn't do expository teaching. I didn't stay uh, for very long, but I did get saved there. 
But at some point, I was just so hungry to know what else God had said beyond the Gospels that I knew I needed to get under the, the you know, either go to seminary, which I did, or, or sit more deeply under someone's teaching. And I think the churches going forward are going to have to, to be a part of this, uh, uh, to be God followers, you're going to have to follow what it is God has revealed. Yeah. And, and otherwise, you can call yourself anything. But um, this this notion of being a Christian is going to you have to follow the words of Jesus. Yeah, and that's what's so important is that you know obviously when it comes to many different religions, it's a different view of God. And if you get the view of God wrong, if you get the view of Jesus wrong, it has a serious effect. Ideas have consequences. Yeah. And if you don't, you know, it's the same thing. It's like, well, I'm going to take this medicine, but I think this medicine is going to help me with this, this, and this. It's like, no, that medicine helps you with a certain thing. If you take the wrong that's medicine, right. you're not going to get better. And so, well, if you, our friend John Stone Street always says it this way: ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have victims. Yep. And that is exactly true. Yeah. Uh, some of these ideas lead to death, lead to spiritual death, lead to separation from God. If there is a God, then we have to make a decision. Has he been revealed accurately in the New Testament scripture? If so, then we know how to be united with God and we know what to do in the meantime. Yeah, that's so wonderful. All right, so we have about 10 minutes left or a little bit less, eight minutes, and yeah. uh, this question is going to be, um, okay. you have a whole book on this question, and so you're going to okay. boil down your whole book into eight minutes for us. Um, it. But it's a series of questions, and so here writes in, let me move it back up here to the top. Sorry, I cannot read that. My student's good. I can't. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I can read the I question. Can. Hi, I have a question about the inerrancy of the Bible. I personally think it is a messy, the most messy issue for apologetic. Uh, there is no elegant deductive argument like a cosmological argument that is also, it seems, no simple historical argument for the resurrection. It seems a scholarship, especially with the Old Testament, is really messy. Everything is dis dissected and questioned, and it seems a losing battle since even one simple mistake will destroy inerrancy. What does Mr. Wallace think? Thank you and God bless. Okay, real quickly. First of all, yes, all evidential cases are messy, incredibly messy. Even when you've got a great, strong case, it's complicated. It's cumulative, typically. And it is, it's got weaknesses. Even the truth, the case for the truth. I know what my case's weaknesses are before I ever go to trial. And I know the defense is going to try to exploit those weaknesses. Mm -hmm. All evidential cases. This does not mean that no murder occurred. This does not mean that he didn't do it. It just means that cases made evidentially are messy. Hmm. That's just the nature of cases. That's one of those rules we need to talk to people about so they won't get hung up. Oh, it's messy, therefore it can't be true. That's, good. That's the nature of any causal agent that is involved. Okay, If an agent's involved, it's going to be messy. That's number one. Uh, and evidence, just the way it's presented, is often messy. But inerrancy is a different issue. And so I would say this. When I speak about inerrancy, I speak about it in a very specific way so that I'm not misunderstood. We do not have the original documents. We don't have any original document of the New Testament. We don't. And Bart Ehrman was very famous about saying this early on in a book he wrote called Jesus Interrupted. This was the thing he said at Moody Bible Institute really bothered him as a young Christian. So we don't have an inerrant, we don't have an original document. So it turns out we don't have the first copy of the original or the copy, as he would say in his book, the copy of the copy of the copy of the original. And the first copy we sometimes have is hundreds of years after the fact. And when we compare the most ancient copies we do have to one another, they don't match in many places. So how can we call this inerrant? 
when they don't, the oldest manuscripts we have don't even match each other. Well, it turns out we have so many manuscripts that we can actually go back and return to the original intent of the author by comparing the number of manuscripts we have. So it doesn't really matter how many variants there are between the manuscripts. What really matters is how many manuscripts do you have? So you can compare and do this thing called literary criticism, which you can return reliably to the inerrant original. And that's how I always say it. I believe the autographs, the originals, are the inerrant word of God. But we don't have those yet, but we can return reliably to the inerrant original. And that's how I always phrase it. Would and you? That's, that's sufficient for me. Yeah. So would you, I mean, is there any comparison there of like recreating the original crime scene based on all these pieces of evidence that you have? I mean, is there any connection there? Is that just me kind of think of like an well, analogy it, that it, might make sense? Saying, okay, so I have three witnesses who all caught about 30% of what this dude said. And I can kind of see the overlap, but it, but sometimes you get out of audible range for one of them. So she only catches 30% of it. Then the next person's standing here and he catches another 30%. And there's some overlap, but I, I, I need all three in order to return reliably to the original statement. And even if that original so, crime scene has been destroyed, you know, they built a house sure. over it, they, they wiped it clear, it's 30 years later, there's no DNA still sitting on the sidewalk, you know, but well, you can still, based it's, it's on everything you have, recreate that crime scene. Well, let's put it this way. Do I need inerrancy in order to believe the, 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 uh, what happened in the, new, uh, in the first century with Jesus of Nazareth? Uh, no, I don't. Do I think the, uh, God's word's inerrant? Yes, I do. But do I need it? No. That was never my goal as an early investigator of the scriptures. I mean, as a matter of fact, look, if you find, uh, I always say it this way, if you find a verse in which you have a variant between the most ancient manuscripts, take the whole verse out. Take it out. I'm willing to give you every other word in that verse, just take it out. Well, what do you still know about Jesus? The same thing you knew before. Yeah. Yeah, it's a choppier read. Yeah. But but it's just it's still a read. Yeah. That you don't lose the data of Jesus by taking out all the variations. And I don't think any skeptic is suggesting you should take out every single line in which a variant occurs. Right? It's all even better than that. Take out every other verse. All the odds are all the evens. No skeptic thinks you should take out every other verse. But if you did that, you still have every single claim of the New Testament. First of all, in the synoptics, the odds of you taking out a verse in Matthew, you might find it in, in Mark and it comes right back in again. Because you didn't take it out in Mark, you only took it out in Matthew. And yeah. Luke is the same way. Yeah. I, at the end, the end, you are not going to erase Jesus of Nazareth in the first century by any claims about the number of variants that there are. And even if you said, well, I don't know that this is the inerrant word of God. What I'm looking for, I've never had ever an inerrant witness. Every witness I've ever put in front of a jury makes mistakes. Mm -hmm. And judges have instructions for jurors so they don't expect inerrancy in witnesses. This does not disqualify. As a matter of fact, you can be wrong and still be considered reliable according to the jury instructions. Mm -hmm. So in the end, even if this is not the inerrant word of God, you're still stuck with Jesus of Nazareth, but I actually believe it is the inerrant word yeah. of God. Wonderful. Now, I want to finish in our last like two minutes uh, here, kind of taking a yeah. different approach to this aspect of, of the question, because you started yeah. our conversation saying you kind of don't make the philosophical approach, the cosmological argument um, in, in kind of what you do. And so how would you then, if it's not this elegant deductive argument, how could you make a simple historical evidential argument for something like the resurrection? Because you're using abductive reasoning, not deductive reasoning. This is what we do in every criminal trial. We're going to give you a set of facts evidences we present to you. And then I'm going to have an explanation for those. The defense is also going to offer a couple of explanations, possibly. 
And the question you have to ask is, does my explanation make the most sense of the facts that have been presented? That's called abductive reasoning or inferring to the most reasonable explanation. And that's what we do. So I'm not looking to make deductive um, um, cases, um, abductive reasoning. That's what we're using in jury trials. By the way, it's also what we use at, at, death, at death scenes to determine if it, the death scene is a crime scene. So, so we're, we're always using this abductive reasoning, just inferring. And that's a, an absolutely appropriate approach to investigating any causal explanation for any event in the past. Yeah. Well, so good. Well, Jim, this I think has been so helpful because often we talk about what the arguments are for Christianity and all this kind of stuff, but often we don't take that step back and say, what actually counts as evidence for God? What counts as evidence for Christianity? So thank you so much for just bringing your expertise on understanding evidence and jury trials and persuasiveness to, to help us know how can we can, you could, or how we can use this to talk about God, Christianity uh, with the people around us. I really appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate you having me, brother. I'll be doing it again soon, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. So everybody else, thank you so much for watching. Hopefully this has been, oh my goodness, that's the wrong video. Why did it do that? Oh, there we go. There we go. I didn't test that part, I guess. Right, thank you so much for watching. Um, I hope this has been beneficial to you as you learn about what actually counts as evidence and how we can make evidential approaches and arguments for God's existence. As always, subscribe. Please share this with your friend, family. Help them see it as well if this has been a blessing to you so more people can be blessed by it. Also, uh, new interviews coming up. I got one on... Uh, I'm blanking out again. One on neuroscience and what that says about the soul, progressive Christianity, some fun stuff coming up in the future. So definitely be sure to check those out as well. And then as always, have a wonderful rest of your day. God bless. And I'll see you next time. I just won't hesitate to follow your love.